0: A talk is about walking through the vast range of joy and sorrows in this world with love and wisdom. I have some friends in Australia that I stay with when I teach there. And in the cottage they place me in, they have this beautiful uh, tapestry from Burma. And it's an embroidery of a Buddha's footprint. It's so beautiful. It has a black background and beautiful colors. And the first time I saw it lying um, in bed, I hadn't seen it in night when I went to sleep because there's no electricity in that cabin. Uh, so I went in in the dark and then woke up in the light and the first thing I saw was this Buddha's footprint. It's so beautiful. And I thought about, you know, what would it be like to walk with the Buddha, sit with the Buddha, and really feel that atmosphere of of a very deep balance of wisdom and love. I think it's very important to have this kind of image sometimes when we're practicing, maybe when we're walking, and we're walking from point A to point B, to walk toward the Buddha, or when you're sitting, you know, have the Buddha next to you or in front of you so you remember to tune into what we're doing there or here. And if we kind of sum up what we're doing here, it's really trying to purify our intention and we're trying to meet each, each experience with the intention to understand, not to judge. So, we're learning to walk like a Buddha through the very uh, vast changes in life with this intention to understand rather than to judge the change. With the development of wisdom and love, we're able to bring more and more wisdom and compassion to our experience. There's a teacher from India named Srinasargadatta Maharaj who said, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. When I stayed in Burma this February teaching there, I lived outside a lot. That's kind of the nature of the experience, being there. For some days, I felt quite disoriented uh, when I first landed there. And I noticed that unless I can find the Big Dipper in the North Star when I've traveled a long way, I don't quite feel oriented. And I kept trying to find the Big Dipper, and I just couldn't find it. <laughs> uh, so I'd get up early and get up late. Uh, and then one morning, I happened to be outside at 3 in the morning, and I noticed it. Uh, And then, from that time, because I kept trying to find it, I noticed how fast the stars really do travel in the sky. And how really, you know, there's the sunrise, the sunset, the sunrise, the sunset. This birth and death of day and night is happening quite quickly. There are many perspectives on the fact that we're born into a world of change. And that because of this impermanence, we never know what's going to happen. And that if we look really closely at our experience, we really can't find anything solid there. Even if we look for the mind itself or consciousness itself, we'll start to see even that is disappearing or appearing and disappearing. So whether we're noticing that anything is appearing or disappearing or just disappearing we start to see that experience itself is ungraspable this is the beginning of that understanding that wisdom tells me I'm nothing and that therefore there's nothing worth holding on to this is where non-attachment Comes from unconditional peace, the peace that one experiences walking with the Buddha. Understanding that all things appear and disappear or disappear sometimes brings up a kind of fear that uh, life is hollow or cold. I just gave a talk in Cambridge on Wednesday night and the talk was on the first noble truth. Uh, When we think of the way that's translated, all life is suffering. There's a way if if that isn't translated well or if we don't understand it, it means it kind of we can go down into this kind of glum misery around life. But that isn't... Uh, what wisdom tells me of nothing, means, or is meant to lead to. So the emptiness or insubstantiality of experience means that it's ungraspable and ultimately mysterious. If we practice a very deep listening with each moment, we see that this understanding brings us to deeper and deeper acceptance and peace not to a horrible, cold world. Love tells me I'm everything. The experience of loving-kindness brings us to the experience of profound interconnectedness. It's the understanding that there really is no duality. Me, you, it's just a misperception. Hopefully, sometime in our spiritual journey, we start to realize that we need to value both of these understandings. That love is equally important to wisdom and vice versa. That they really inform each other and purify each other to where maybe we will have that sense that between love and wisdom, our life flows. Our life has to flow with this range of love and wisdom amidst this change of pleasure, pain, joy, and sorrow. So keep in mind that, for example, we're developing unconditional peace in the midst of joy and sorrow. And that understanding purifies the love. That's how wisdom informs love. So the meta mind, or the loving-kindness mind, has no self. In the way that understanding can purify love, it will really help that love not to be uh, inclusive, meaning that it's supposed to be exclude. meaning that it's exclusive, it's meant to be inclusive. It's meant to not just be... Um, referring to the people that bring us the most pleasure or the beings in this world that will bring us the most pleasure and those are the ones that are often easiest for us. But it's the understanding, the wisdom, allows us for that love to broaden out, to include all beings. I did my first retreat, it was a two-week retreat, in Bucksport, Maine, in 1975. I was uh, completely ignorant of what I was getting myself into, totally. There were people who had been sitting in this monastery in Maine for two and a half months, and I came from my tree house in northern Maine, into this atmosphere. Uh, And it was quite quiet quite peaceful. People were very committed. About three-quarters of the way into this retreat, I was having lunch and some woman had a full glass of water and was walking along by me and she dropped it and the glass shattered everywhere. Uh, How people related to that experience had the most profound effect on on me of that retreat. Uh, So, it was like there was this ceremony of mindfulness and metta around this woman. And so, I think we all know that sense of when a glass shatters, how our conditioning can get played out, and how we'll feel so self-conscious, and worried about how other people will react. Some people, kept eating and acted like nothing had happened, you know, like that was an ordinary event. Um, some people just got up and started picking up the glass. Other people went to get some towels and a broom. It was like everybody played a part and knew what their part is, and it was seamless. There was a dance. It was like being in this atmosphere or garden of love and wisdom. As this event just came and went, I was sitting there thinking of the times that I've broken things in my childhood and how there was so much analysis or blame uh, or worry, guilt, admonishment. Not just the simple, seamless experience of dropping, hearing, and responding with the most skillful with the intention to understand rather than to judge. At that time, I didn't understand at all how that atmosphere really was created. I, didn't, I couldn't tell you why that atmosphere was so refined and so skillful. But I knew I appreciated it. You know, it was so impactful. I was committed to finding out what it was that created such a sense of ease amidst something like a broken glass. Sometimes we might be committed to that atmosphere but not always be able to maintain it. In the summer in Honolulu, it's quite warm. And I still have my New England conditioning that one can leave butter out overnight, and not really have a problem. One day I was in one of my extreme rushes and busy days, and I came zooming into the kitchen and noticed that I had left the butter out overnight, and it looked very unhappy. (laughs) You know, the butter looked like, it was time to put it in the refrigerator. Uh, But I was in a hurry, and not really, I didn't really have this atmosphere of mindfulness and ease and well-being, I went running over to the butter, picked it up, and was running to the refrigerator with it, and it just went flying everywhere. I've mean, i never had an experience in the kitchen like this. I mean, it went in every crack, in every... I mean, it went everywhere on the ceiling, (laughs) on the floor. It was (laughs) like a nightmare one doesn't want to wake up to. When one's in a hurry, it was like, how can something... sabotage someone so dramatically. So I started just trying to attempt to clean it and I started slipping (laughs) and sliding, (laughs) which was making me angrier and angrier. And I was just focused on what I had to do and how late I was getting. It was hopeless. And I just had to finally surrender to that this was going to take a long time to fix. And that I had to just shift. (laughs) You know, I brought back that atmosphere of mindfulness, it's like a kind of dance. It's that acceptance and love. And sometimes something like that also requires a lot of humor. We have these vast range of experiences in a day. At the talk that I gave in Cambridge, (coughs) I met the parents at the end of the talk. They came up to meet me of one of the young adults at the young adult retreat that we've had for 10 years here. And he's new. He's, He's 14. He came at 13. He's a very young 13. I remember him well. And his parents said, you know, he still doesn't want to sit with us. But, he's already arranged his summer schedule next year to come back to IMS. And, he, and they just were sort of surprised about it, but they noticed that it's, he says it's the atmosphere of being at IMS that affects him. He doesn't understand yet that it's the mindfulness, it's the equanimity sometimes, of people working with him at the retreat, uh, it's the loving kindness here. But it's so tangible that Stephen and I, when we, our goal in teaching it is just to get them here and to have them by osmosis absorb that power of peace, of wisdom, of love. I'd like to read a quotation from a young woman who wrote me a letter after the retreat. This was her first retreat. Uh, one of the things another young adult said to me, uh, a young man, and he's a kind of jock at school, very large, uh, and there's a whole range of types of young adults that come to the retreat. What they all appreciate is that the labels drop away. It doesn't matter if you're the smart one, or the nerd, or the jock, or the wallflower. It's like there's this atmosphere of acceptance and inclusivity. And they see that for the first time they can be in an atmosphere where the persona isn't judged. They feel that freedom from the lack of judgment. So this woman said, young woman said, she's 15, I feel like I've changed a lot in the past few weeks. Being at the retreat definitely changed me. It was so neat to be with a group of teenagers, without all the pressure and competitiveness that would normally be in a similar situation. She wrote this from um, being uh, like a nanny in the summer in Europe. She had three young children and a lot of responsibility. She was taking care of these three children. Uh, One of the children was six and one was three. And she was having trouble getting them to go to sleep at night. So she started using this bait. She said that she would teach them the metta chant because we taught them the metta chant this year if they would come to bed. They loved it. She used the metta chant as a way to get them to bed. <laughs> and their favorite words were <coughs> pati patiya and pujami. <laughs> hmm. So remember when the chanting goes on here, uh, it's going on a lot of places. It would be on loudspeakers in Burma in the nighttime. Uh, there's also some young adults chanting it when they go to sleep. Or these this three-year-old who loves the word patipatiya and pujami. They like that feeling of the metta chant. There's something about the metta chant, it comes across. There's an old friend of mine who lives about an hour from here, when I'm here, he'll come for interviews even though he has a busy schedule. I try to make time for him because he's so committed to the practice in his daily life. And he said that just walking in here is so transforming for him. You know, to feel the energy here is wonderful. I'm talking about this tonight because it's often that we lose the sense of how quiet we are when the retreat goes on. It's like the retreat becomes unfathomable. We start thinking that our minds are very noisy. You know, They're very noisy with aversion at times, and we're very noisy with attachment at times. Uh, but actually, if we airlifted you all into the Boston airport right now, you would probably notice a big loss of a kind of refinement (laughs) of atmosphere. And please remember that as the days go on, you're not going to know where you are. It's just going to get more and more ungraspable, more and more wild. Uh, It's meant to be. Life is that. It is mysterious. It is ungraspable. And as you let go of control and are able to be more mindful, and have more metta, it becomes mysterious and true. So what we're doing here is planting a garden of mindfulness and loving kindness. We're committed to at least try to remember the intention to understand rather than to judge. This is a poem by Pablo Neruda. It's one of his last poems, in a book of last poems. It's about mortality. We, the mortals, touch the metals, the wind, the ocean shores, the stones, knowing they will go on, inert or burning. And I was discovering, naming all these things. It was my destiny to love and to say goodbye. Do you think of it as your human destiny to be able to love and to say goodbye? That's the practice. Each moment, can we receive it with love? It's our life. Our life is so precious and so fleeting. And yet we're resisting it. We're resisting this ungraspable change and range of joy and sorrow. And yet if we can bring that enough tenderness to each moment, say it's a breath, if there is enough tenderness there, receptivity, we will receive it. And if we completely receive it, we can say goodbye to it. It's this balance of receptivity and non-attachment. And it requires some tenderness, or else we'll be a little bit off. Or it'll be that sense that it's just the breath. Uh, It's coming and going, but it won't have that exquisiteness of the truth of the moment. To maybe be able to do that for two moments is why you come to a long retreat. Or three moments. This isn't easy to do. The continuity of it is hard. If only could we could wear some t-shirt that said, you know, I passed the exam. I don't have to do it anymore. Uh, it's just the opposite as we start to see what's really happening, we start to see, oh, this is a way of life. This isn't something that I, I um, get like a degree and it's over. In terms of our experience being wildly ungraspable, I think of mindfulness as don't know mind. It's such a wonderful phrase, don't know mind. It really means pure exploration or meeting our experience with mindfulness an attitude of discovery. If we understand that life is impermanent, uh, then pure exploration is easier to do. Uh, We realize that when we let go of the last moment and it's gone, the next moment is going to be unknown. The truth is that it is that mysterious. Uh, To be able to face this takes a great deal of mindfulness and equanimity. If we're not protected by mindfulness and equanimity, we can't really bring don't know mind to the experience because we're too afraid. Too afraid to face the death of the last moment and really experience the birth of the next moment. In the regard to this, we can see how comparing really kills. Don't know mind. We sit there and we think, my last sitting was so much better. How can we have don't know mind a pure, pure exploration if we're doing that? And of course, we do do that. <laughs> we do it a lot, we're comparing our experience from the last retreat or uh, maybe, maybe by this point in the retreat, we might have let go of the last retreat, maybe. We often remember the end of the last retreat. We don't (laughs) remember all of this part, we always remember that glorious part, or we remember how we felt when we came out, that's always the best. Uh, not usually the long day. Don't know mind is wise attention. And it's facing the truth of life as it is. So maybe we're we're trying to be with a sound or with a breath. Yet there's this subtle undercurrent of waiting. With that waiting, there's either this expectation or subtle anticipation Um, and the experience will not quite be good enough. We're almost there. It's it's like we're waiting for some experience to happen. It's amazing how we do this. We're just a, a little bit ahead of ourselves and we can't quite remember that it's where we are that's what's important. So, we're waiting for whatever it is that we're waiting for (laughs) to happen. (laughs) Uh, It's great to, to see in these places how if we can bring this pure exploration to that moment, it shifts from not being okay to, oh, it's just waiting. We bring the intention to understand to that experience of waiting. So we often think we have to get rid of expectation or anticipation to shift deeper in the practice. In fact, anticipation and expectation will start to appear as we get quieter. We can smell the the unconditioned sometimes. We can smell going deeper. And then that rush of grabbing on happens. It's a place in practice that one goes through over and over and over and over. And it's just this ability to not get lost in the expectation or waiting. uh, And just shifting the mindfulness to it. That's the purity of mindfulness. And it's wonderful. When we learn to do it. There's nothing like it. Because we don't have to fear the anticipation anymore. We don't have to fear the comparing or anything. We don't have to get rid of it to go deeper. We just use whatever experience is there to develop the understanding and compassion. So in the past, it might be that we get thrown off over and over by anticipation and uh, expectation. And as we become more mindful of it, we just slip back into the present moment because we open to that experience rather than push it away. It's this ability to shift, to being aware of just what's there on the surface, just what's ordinary, uh, that allows us to really let a moment come and go by itself. When we're protected by this garden of metta, or mindfulness, when nothing is happening, that's totally okay. Or when wanting mind happens, or peace happens, or sleepiness happens, it's totally okay. Whether joy, or sorrow, or neutrality is happening, it's okay. This is from an aborigine elder from Australia. What's important is beyond all understanding. That's the first thing you must understand. And never forget, everything's a mystery. Once it stops being a mystery, it stops being true. He's called a lawman. That's the law. When mindfulness and equanimity aren't present, we're usually not able to accept change. We fear change. when there's mindfulness and equanimity present, we usually can accept impermanence. When we totally accept impermanence, we can totally trust change. So this is the relationship. When we have that atmosphere of mindfulness, equanimity, metta, uh, there's that deep trust because there's that deep being in touch with the truth. Each moment is unique. The reason why mortality is so hard to be able to love and say goodbye is that we are unique. Each chipmunk is unique. I see these squirrels when I drive along the road here. It's like we, have, we can have six kamikaze squirrels at a time. It's like they're waiting there, ready to jump under my car and give me a nervous breakdown. One day I counted six. Now it does slow me down, I must say, but it's amazing how that squirrel's life is unique. Can I stay open to that and not make my destination more important than that unique being? I have a friend that had pancreatic cancer last October. She was diagnosed with it. And she died in May, early May this year. I went to see her the week before she died. And she asked me, why is this so hard? She started crying and she said, I'm totally lost. And then she said... She's been a long time meditator. She said, all of my practice has been intellectual up to this point. It was so hard to see her feeling like being lost wasn't okay at that point. If there's anything I could hope for all of us here in this room is to be able to be mindful of being lost. And that it's part of the, the, part of the journey. If one is in that much pain before we die, it's going to get really hard. And there are times when we do get lost. I felt so badly that she had that idea that at that point she should be totally clear. That isn't it, the deeper the challenges, the deeper the times that we will get lost. Being able to relate to any experience that we're having, to understand that it doesn't matter what the experience is, being clear or being lost, uh, this is the practice. It's just to, to step back, have this receptivity and see if we can accept it. I went to see my uh, family a little while ago, some of them, in Framingham. I spent the most time with my great-nephew, who's 10. And his dad died a few years ago. Uh, And I see him just sort of coming out of the depths of the pain around that in the way that children do. Not so consciously. He really wanted to spend time with me. I don't know him so well, but his favorite thing to do is for me to take him to the railroad tracks and to walk the tracks. There are many family stories about this. So my mother lived next to the railroad tracks and the story is, is that she used to jump the trains walk on top of them. He loves this story. And his second favorite story is my stories of walking for miles on the tracks when I was a child and looking for in those days what we called bums. And the bums in those days, these are homeless people, (laughs) would live under the bridges uh, and I would walk and walk and walk until I could find them. Then we spent a lot of time just hanging out and he found the stick and he started carving it with his favorite little knife that he carries. He's carving and carving and I'm trying not to act like he's going to cut off a finger (laughs) because he's carving as we're walking. So every once in a while I'd casually mention, you know, be careful, but inside I was kind of like, Be careful, (laughs) but I acted equanimous. I wasn't equanimous, but I think he appreciated the act a lot. (laughs) I don't think he gets the act very much from his parents. (laughs) So it turned out that eventually he made a snake (coughs) out of this piece of wood. He's not doing very well in school, uh, and I was trying to encourage him to do physical things like carving because he's quite good at it. And in the moment that he finished the snake, he just gave it to me. You know, and he'd spent all day on it. And it was that moment of just pure generosity that children can have. He just let it go, even though it was so, so great. It was his way of saying thank you. This was a moment of joy. You know, these are the moments of joy in life when one feels that utter connection uh, with that dance of holding it all, all the joy and sorrow, all the family, history, all my wishes for Him. Sometimes the range of joy and sorrow in this world is hard to bear. This is a poem from Anna Akhmatova, who lived in Russia during the days of Stalin and the reign of terror. Her son was in prison a lot. She lost a lot of friends. I drink to our ruined house and to the ashes of our lost loves to the lying lips of those who have betrayed us, and to their dead, cold eyes. And I drink to this terrible truth. The world is a coarse and brutal place, and God has failed to save us." We know those times in this world, this human world. It's so hard to find a context. For that kind of pain and sorrow, and yet she drinks to it. I drink to our ruined house. There are times when the world can seem so brutal. I have to remind myself or other people that we are, from the Buddha's point of view, fifth from the bottom you know, in terms of the 32 planes of existence, the human world really isn't considered a very developed place. Uh, (laughs) uh, When I went to Africa, one of the things I saw first was a um, cheetah killing an impala. And that rawness of just one being attacking another being like that and eating it. In that animal world, there's a way in which... It's painful, um, but it's, it's a way of life. When we, when we shift into the human world, there's a level to the brutality that is unimaginable. And it really does take, you know, it's, it's like um, being able to be mindful and equanimous of knee pain is how we start to be able to open to the vast range of sorrow in this world as well as the joy. If you keep thinking that the knee pain or the back pain is an obstacle, it's not, it's not <laughs> what's happening here. It's really part of the practice. Anything that you're thinking is an obstacle is really what allows us to learn to be liberated in this vast range of joy and sorrow. I went to Martha's Vineyard, an island off the coast here in Massachusetts for a few days with Steve and two friends before this retreat started. One day we went to these cliffs, they're called the Gay Head Cliffs on the other side of the island. I had this experience of walking along with, with these friends where the clay cliff this whole huge red and gray clay cliff is starting to erode into the ocean so when one walks through the ocean the clay this beautiful shiny red and gray marble clay is is melting into the ocean Uh, so i was in this state of feeling how beautiful it was and i was in the state of just joyful delightful joy it's kind of actually ecstatic joy of seeing this beauty and my friend said, in the midst of my ecstatic state, isn't it sad to see all this beauty washing away? And it was, it was great, because it was like the other side of that joy was the truth, that that cliff was <laughs> disappearing. These gayhead head cliffs are eroding into the ocean. And I thought for a moment, and I said, yeah, this is like all of us. You know, we're all just washing away. It's life. It was so achingly beautiful and so poignant. It reminded me of this time in Burma where, because I was outside a lot, I was watching the phases of the moon in a way that I don't often get to. Uh, So I would watch the moon grow, become full, and then slowly disappear. And what I noticed is that when the moon starts to disappear each night, it gets more and more like a smile. And the night before it doesn't come up anymore, the night before it disappears, it just disappears into the smiling, disappearing moon. And then when it takes birth again, when it's reborn, it's smiling again. And it was helping me kind of accept my own aging. It's like I was seeing myself (laughs) <laughs> I'm definitely not at the full moon, folks. You know, And I can feel like that shifting of the moon going. Uh, and I think about, especially being a woman and getting older, how in our culture it's so hard to be accepted for that or to accept it without doing a lot of fuss, to say the least. Um, <laughs> you know, to just let the hair go gray or just to let the wrinkles come or whatever. Um, And the moon really helped me to see how beautiful that is. And that we can all disappear in that way. Maybe. I think it's much easier to accept that kind of washing away when it's the moon or the clay when it's uh my sister, it's very hard <coughs> and my sister is uh has ovarian cancer and it's very aggressive. So we keep thinking that her next CAT scan treatment is gonna work and then it c- it spreads. This December I was sort of hoping that, that last her last range of chemo, her last round of chemo would help. In fact, I was sure it had helped. And I think my whole family had been sure. So I got the news that it had spread just before I left here at the end of the course last year. And it was at night, it was about 10 o'clock at night that I heard that it had spread. It was one of these nights it was the full moon and it had snowed and all the trees were off, all the leaves were off the trees. It was like these bare Silhouettes. And I was so angry when I first heard that it had spread. I was just, it was just like, no. My mind just was like a total big no, furious, uh, tantrum like. So I, w- I decided to go out in the woods, which I do when I'm in a lot of moods. <laughs> but that mood <laughs> is a good one to go out there in. And as I walked through the woods, it shifted from that total closing of the door, no, this isn't okay, to that vulnerability of grief and sorrow. Uh, And I could feel the tears. So I kept walking, and I noticed the moonlight and the trees. It was so beautiful. And I noticed how I was attached to the grief and the anger. It's like I I couldn't let the... beauty of the moon in and yet it was one of these unusual moments where it was just like the peace and the atmosphere of beauty in the woods was so overwhelming I had to let go of the anger and grief and I had this moment of total acceptance or moments. This is a peak experience and I'm still going through that cycle sometimes I feel like my heart goes underground with the grief. I'm learning a lot about grief because we're (laughs) in another round of the cancer spreading. Um, And I notice it takes a lot of um, energy. Sometimes I get really tired. But if I can, it's almost like I take the time to dig myself into the ground, find my heart, and it's like the tears are a way to get connected to my heart. And then the grief is okay. And I find that acceptance of death again. There's a great poem. I only remember part of it at this point in my life, but it's an anonymous Chinese poem. And he says, There is life, there must be death an early end is not fate's hurry. And that, that, fa- that phrase, an early end is not fate's hurry, has always been important to me when someone young dies, or you know, something uh, that doesn't seem like it should happen, uh, happens. And yet on a deep level, we can't prevent karma and life from rolling on in the way it does. We can do the best we can. I say many prayers, I share merit, um, and then we have to let go of control. And this is ultimately this teaching of don't know mind, of being able to let go of the past, really receive the moment with love, and then say goodbye to that moment. It's understanding that birth, life, and death are okay. When we have that understanding, we'll feel that atmosphere of the Buddha. Using the gift of life wisely. It's so important to remember that life is a gift, that it's precious. That can help us relate to each moment or each experience with this tenderness or love. It's what allows us to initially plant the seeds of mindfulness and metta, planting this atmosphere And then the seeds of understanding and compassion will grow as we relate to our experience as being something to learn from. We're here to learn spiritually. And whatever you're up against at this retreat is what your instruction is. This is your spiritual instruction. My friend that uh, died in May, in the big island in Hawaii, created her own memorial service. And I found it to be such an expression of joy and sorrow, and deep acceptance of that. I wanted to end with the poem that her husband read as part of this service. Uh, So she had Aiken Roshi, she designed this all herself. I thought it was so great. She had Aiken Roshi say something, and then she had me say something. And then her husband, with her young children, uh, were up there with this poem, read this poem. And then she had a great sax, saxophone player play. And then hula. And then she had some physician friends of hers. Uh, She's a physician. She did a drumming, a Hawaiian drumming uh, group with these other women and they played a, they, chant, they did a drumming chant for her. And then um, at the end there was African drumming because she loved African dance. It was such a movement from kind of the beginning where there was that expression of sorrow and pain uh, to this incredible dancing so the the person who introduced the African dancing said that this woman, Susan, really wanted everybody to get up and dance. And no one would. You know, there were like 500 people there under this white tent. And so this young woman found me somehow. She looked at me and she made eye contact. And I was like, oh no. The minute she (laughs) made eye contact with me, I knew she was going to pick on me. And she came up to me and she said, would you dance Uh, and I just everything in me was just filled with dread like I knew I'd be the one who had to get up there and do this dancing and this isn't my thing, right so I said she looked at me and I said no, you know (laughs) I kept pointing to Chandra my daughter and Steve and not me Uh, so then she whispered in my ear Susan would want you to do this And I knew that was true. I knew that uh, somehow there was a teaching in that for me to go from my kind of more Buddhist uh, background to dancing African dance. So I got up and I found that that just stepping on the earth with that drumming really transformed that uh, experience of the service. It moved the service from opening to the range of sorrow, to the joy, And I could just feel her there, (laughs) so, like she was laughing. You know, like, I designed this, (laughs) this is what it was about. And it was a great, it was a great experience. And because so many people were self-conscious, I ended up dancing, me and Chandra, um, and it was a great, uh, it was a great experience for both of us to open to and face death together in that way. So this is (coughs) her favorite poem, and it's called The Flowers Poem. And she loves flowers. It's a little long, but it's a great poem. So try to stay with it. It's about the practice in our life. (coughs) The world is a flower. Gods are flowers. Enlightened ones are flowers. All phenomena are flowers, red flowers, white flowers, green flowers, yellow flowers, black flowers, all the different kinds of the colors of flowers, all of the different kinds of loves shining forth. Life unfolds from life and returns to life. Such an immense universe, oh, many lives, flowers of gratitude, flowers of sorrow, flowers of suffering, flowers of joy, laughter's flowers, anger's flowers, heaven's flowers, hell's flowers, each connected to the others and each making the others grow. When our real mind's eye opens this world of flowers, all beings shine, music echoes through mountains and oceans, One's world becomes the world of millions. The individual becomes the human race. All the lives become the individual. Billions of mirrors all reflecting each other. There is death and there is life. There is no death and no life. There is changing life, there is unchanging life. Flowers change color moment by moment. Such a vivid world, such a bright you. You were born out of these flowers. You gave birth to these flowers. You have no beginning and no ending. You are bottomless and limitless, even as you are infinitesimal dust. You are the flower, you are love, all beings shine out of their uniqueness all melt into the oneness of colors. You are one. You are many. Only one moment. Only one unique place. Only the unique you. Beside you there is nothing. You dance, appearing in all. From nowhere you came, to nowhere you go. You stay nowhere. You are nowhere attached. You occupy everything. You occupy nothing. You are the becoming of indescribable change. You are love. You are the flower. Let's sit for a minute. May we walk through this vast range of joy and sorrow with love and wisdom.